Well, hello there. How are we? Welcome back to Here's Looking at You Film, a podcast for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities. I'm your host, Nikki, and unless you listened to the last episode, you're probably a little surprised to see me back again this week. Um, if you listened to the last episode, you probably know all of this. But um, last week I didn't put out an episode because I had gotten this um, Monroe lip piercing and my lip was terribly swollen. It was hard for me to talk hard for me to eat. Um, it's, I love it, but, um, it just wasn't working for me making the podcast. So, um, I decided to take the week off, but I did want to stay on schedule. So this week, um, we did our musical Tommy earlier this week, but I know not everybody's into musicals. So I decided the second episode would be a little lighter, something that I really enjoy. One of my comfort shows, one of the main reasons that I decided to do this podcast, um, hosted by uh, one of my favorite men, the angry boy of Hollywood. Um, today, we are entering the Twilight Zone. So, The Twilight Zone is a science fiction horror anthology show um, created by Rod Serling. Now, Rodman Serling uh, was nicknamed the Angry Young Man of Hollywood because he was... um, as we talked about before with the motion picture production code and uh, general uh, Hollywood code, uh, there were a lot of things you couldn't talk about, which is including like political things, things that could cause uprisings, things that could uh, incite any kind of change. They didn't want to talk about any of that stuff on TV or in films. So when Rod created The Twilight Zone, he decided he would take these like very futuristic science fiction uh, thriller kind of um, plots and use them to metaphorically um, teach lessons about things that were going on at the time. So there were episodes that revolved around race relations, political relations, um, sexism, paranoia, psychology, um, all these different subject matters that people didn't really want to discuss or broach, but he could wrap them up in this like futuristic package and make them palatable for TV. And the smartest of us could probably decipher some of these themes. And some people who maybe couldn't decipher them still got to learn a lesson because Rod would very clearly lay out the lesson. He would lay out the subject that we were talking about at the beginning, but at the end, we would get a moral. And the moral was wrapped up in the plot, but it was a very definite and palatable moral that could be applied to everyday life. So um, the Twilight Zone ran from 1959 to 1964. And of course, there have been like a couple of reboots, including the one that was on CBS hosted by and created by Jordan Peele. But those first um, episodes of the Twilight Zone were um, uh, kind of went in and out. Um, TV viewings um, went in and out based on the day that 
the show was put on, the time slot that the show was put on. Um, so there were some years where the show was insanely popular and some years where the show wasn't. But now um, in 2022, a lot of those episodes are iconic and people have parodied these episodes on TV shows, um, basically taken the plots and made full movies out of them, uh, written books based on these plots. So The Twilight Zone continues to be um, a, a transcendent kind of show in our culture that's inspired so many different works. Um, even the idea of like the twist ending um, in a 22 minute time period, uh, uh, time slot, the Twilight Zone was able to take these very like drawn out ideas of a plot and um, smush them into 22 minutes. We talked about the Alfred Hitchcock show as well. Um, and this, we talked about how comparatively um, the shows were similar because they were, you know, short format. You get kind of these episodic um, episodes, <laughs> episodic um, there uh, that just one by one episode. You don't have to see one episode to see another one. Are, is that what they call serialized? I I forget which one is serialized and which I think serialized is is the ones where like they're in. You have to watch them in order. Whatever this is, you don't have to watch them in order. But the Alfred Hitchcock show was way more um, real life based crimes that were based in reality, murders, robberies, um, things that could really happen to people. Whereas The Twilight Zone was very much otherworldly, Twilight. Um, so you get a little bit more of a creepy feel from some of the episodes. Um, there were also some pleasant episodes as well, just as there were in the Alfred Hitchcock show, but um, The Twilight Zone really knew how to take um, one small subject and turn it into something really creepy. So Rod Serling's underlying idea for the show came from his idea that life had uh, has the cruel indifference and implacability of fate and the irony of poetic justice sometimes. And he wanted to display that on screen in a way that the censors would not try to censor. Now, of course, there were some episodes that he tried to get by that they would not let pass. Um, some episodes that were banned that have later been re-released. Um, but those first seasons of The Twilight Zone, the first season of The Twilight Zone uh, premiered on October 2nd, 1959, um, and ended up the last season of the first iteration of The Twilight Zone ended on June 19th, 1964. So we had about five years of show five seasons. Um, there were, there was, I think, two seasons that became one hour episodes, um, but the other three seasons were all relegated to half hours. The intro to the first season began, there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It's an area which we call the Twilight Zone. <laughs> and there's all this mystical music playing in the background, weird, cloudy background. Now, the Twilight Zone music that we know as the um, that 
I believe came in later in season one or early in season two because the Twilight Zone intro for the first seasons um, was just this kind of like twinkly, creepy kind of music. Um, the uh, And the intro was just like a cloudy black and white screen. In the later seasons, we got like the spinning um, hourglass and the weird e equals mc square thing flying across the screen um i think those came in the later seasons but the twilight zone as we know it the do 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 came a little bit later so um today we are actually going to be talking about two episodes there were of course six seasons as i mentioned lots of episodes that we can talk about we will be coming back to this show multiple times probably to talk about multiple episodes but today's episodes are both focused on um being alone isolation um we're going to talk about the first episode uh that was released on october 2nd 1959 which was where is everybody and then we're also going to talk about um, one of the most celebrated episodes of The Twilight Zone, the eighth episode of the first season, Time Enough at Last. Uh, so uh, we're going to get into talking about both episodes, tell you a little bit about the cast, uh, which, funny enough, considering both episodes have a lot to do with isolation, there's not much cast, but I'll tell you as much as I can and uh, get you into these episodes as soon as we can. So our first episode, Where Is Everybody, um, came out, of course, on October 2nd, 1959. It stars Earl Holloman um, and James Gregory Gary Wahlberg. The opening narration, uh, we get an opening narration on every episode that kind of leads us in. This is the very first episode of The Twilight Zone, so we don't really get much of a narration, but here's what we get. The place is here. The time is now, and the journey into the shadows that we are about to watch could be our journey. So when our episode begins, for most of the episode, we are with one man. He walks along a dirt road and comes into a diner, starts calling around the diner, telling people that he's hungry. He wants some eggs. He's got $3 and 50 cents, I think he says, which... Oh, no, he says he's got $2.65 um, in his pocket, which uh, this is 1959 and uh, rounded for today's currency. I think that's about $35 or 20 something dollars. So basically he's saying I got like 25 bucks in my pocket um, and he's asking for eggs and some coffee. No one is answering. Music is playing on the jukebox. Um and it seems like things are smoking, um, like as if something's been cooking. The coffee's still hot, uh, but there is no one around. And he's calling around and notices that he has, when he pulls out the money out of his pocket, he notices he has American money. So this is the first time that he acknowledges that he doesn't really remember anything about who he is or where he's from. He's got small hints because he's got on specific clothing uh, he's got American money in his pocket, and of course he speaks English, um, but he keeps calling out to people. Nobody's there. He even hops back into the kitchen to see if he can look around and find somebody. Nobody. Um, at some point, he knocks over a clock 
in this diner and the jukebox stops when he knocks over the clock. Really weird moment. But he decides uh, he's not getting an answer there, so we'll try another town. He leaves, walks to another nearby town. He's walking around looking for anybody. Now, he has not seen any signs of life this whole time. Um, he's walking around the town, looking in the windows, looking around, nothing. He sees a truck parked across the way. And he gets so excited because he can see someone inside. And he's like, oh my gosh, thank goodness. I'm looking for anybody. Can you please, uh, you know, I'm trying to figure out who I am. I don't know what's going on. He runs over to the truck um, and pulls the door open so he can have some kind of conversation. And a mannequin falls out onto the ground. Do you know how upset, how panicked, how mad I would be? If I had been trying to get in touch with anybody to talk to anybody and I went over thinking I saw somebody and a mannequin falls out of the truck. Now, he's, all this time he's taking it in stride. He's like, the mannequin falls out and he's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't even mean to do that, girl. I didn't mean to make you fall out this truck. See, I'm just trying to figure out who I am and what's going on. He's talking to the mannequin because at this point, I mean, who else is there? Now, there's mannequins in um a building like right behind him and you can see them like set up in a certain way now i looked behind him and it seemed like the mannequins moved when the camera moved but that might have just been me being overly um watchful and doing too much but anyway so now he's like all right well there's still nobody now the phone rings in a phone booth and he's like oh my gosh a person he goes running over to the phone booth he goes to answer it and there's nobody there he's like what is going on he's hitting the receiver he's like hello hello like this phone was just ringing nobody so now he tries to call the operator all he gets is a recording that says like this is an operator nobody's gonna answer your call so now he is freaking out and he is like literally screaming out into the ether where is everybody? Because there's no one title drop. But he's still walking around town and he notices a police station. So he's like, all right, well, somebody has to be in here who can help me. It's the police station. Goes into the police station and he finds nobody, of course. There is a cigar that's still smoking. So it look, it's like it's like if somebody's just sat down the cigar and walked away. The cigar is still smoking in the ashtray, but there is nothing, right? So now he's like, all right, there's gotta be something. So he walks back into the, the jail, in the jail cells. Nobody's in the jail cell, but he walks into one of the cells and he can see shaving cream on the edge of this like sink. So he can tell somebody's been shaving recently. Okay, because shaving cream, I mean, that would dissipate after some time. It would dry up. It's still there. Nobody, but there's shaving cream. So as he's in this jail cell looking at this thing, the jail bars almost lock on him. And he just escapes running out. Of it was so, it's so scary because it's like, there's already nobody around. And if he had gotten locked in that cell, baby, that would have been the end of the episode. Because Lord, could you imagine? 
being locked in a jail cell in a town where there's literally no one that can help you out of it. Anyway, so now he's freaking out. He, I mean, he was already having a little bit of a freak out, but now he is really freaking out. So he's like, I want to wake up now. Like, what is happening? He goes to a soda shop, um, makes himself a Sunday in the soda shop because clearly there's nobody. And he's like, you know, this is crazy. Only me would have a dream where, like, there's literally names written on this chalkboard of each um, person that's on this baseball team. Only me would have all of these buildings so, like, elaborately decorated in my dream. And he's looking around his soda shop after he done made his little Sunday walking around, and he sees book racks. The only books on the book racks is The Last Man on Earth, February 1959. This book came out in February 1959, The Last Man on Earth. And there's like, the, it's the only book. It's like 100, uh, 100 of these books or 50. I don't even know how many books are on, the, on one of those spinning book racks. Only book. So then he leaves because he's like, what is going on? So now he's been, he's just sitting outside. It's nighttime now because, I mean, it's been all day. Night's falling. He's just kind of like drawing lines in the dirt. Lights turn on in the town. Now, this is 1959. So I don't think they had like auto lights. Like somebody in the town had to turn on the lights at night at this time. So the lights come on in the town. And he's like, okay. As the lights come on, the lights on the movie theater marquee pop up. So there's a movie theater. And he's like, okay, let me go to this movie theater. Goes over to the movie theater. And the movie theater movie that's playing is the battle hymn. And then outside, outside of it, there is uh, an advertisement for this film. And there's a guy that has on like a jet fighter pilot um, outfit. And it's the same kind of outfit that he has on. And he's like, oh my gosh, this guy has on my outfit. I'm in the Air Force. So now he's, now he knows he's an American because of the money he has. And he knows he's in the Air Force because he sees his outfit. He runs inside and he's like, I'm in the Air Force. He's like super excited that he didn't figure something out. Runs inside. Nobody's in there. Now, there's a movie playing. He, Because he's trying to figure out how he got in this situation, what happened with the Air Force, why he's all by himself. He's trying to figure out if there was a war, if there was some kind of bomb, something crazy happened. But he knows he's in the Air Force and he's by himself. This movie starts playing and... He's like, okay, so movies don't just run by themselves. Like, even now, you need someone to turn the thing on. So he's like, okay, let me go to the projection booth. Goes to the projection booth. Nobody's there. Okay. So now Buddy is, like, beyond panic. This is not even, like, just regular, like, what is going on now. He's just, like, frantically searching for any sign of life, of anything. He runs 
um, downstairs ends up running into a mirror because he's like just frantically trying to run. And it almost reminds me of like, you know how like a bird flies into a window or like when babies are just running around and they don't know what's going on and they like bump into a glass door or a glass window or something. It, it's literally like that. Like he's freaking out trying to get out and just runs into this mirror. So he gets up. It takes him a minute to figure out what just happened. And, but now he's just like, like terrified. It's, it, he's gone from like curious to anxious, to afraid, to frantic, to now it's just like full on terror for him right now. Like nothing is explained. He hasn't been able to get in touch with anybody. This man doesn't even know who he is. And he runs through the streets and he sees this, um, walk button um on a on a street sign and he goes over and walk goes to the and he's pushing the walk button repeatedly just 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 put please please somebody come help me he's just pushing this walk button like that's gonna do anything well child this he's not real as you probably can guess he is not really in this town with nobody he is in a single, solitary room. He's being observed by a bunch of men. And the button that he's pressing is not a walk button. It's the panic button in the small room that he's in. This man, notably named Sergeant Mike Ferris, is in an isolation booth. And he's being observed. He's been being observed for 484 hours. So that's about 20 days. See, when uh, in 1959, when uh, people needed to go into space, um, there was no like NASA qualification uh, situation because NASA wasn't quite um, developed yet. So when people needed to go into space, they would look for at people from the Air Force because, you know, the air is, I mean, it's pretty much space. Space is air. If you just keep going into the air, you get to space, right? So um, <laughs> he was being tested. It had been about 20 days um, and he was suffering from hallucinations from sensory deprivation. Now he asked his uh, superior like, hey, you know, is it bad that that happened to me? Like, you know, am I, am I going to get to try again? And he was like, you know what, honestly, anybody who was isolated for 20 days and was, didn't have contact with anybody or anything could be expected to go mad. So we're going to try again. Don't you worry. And, uh, the Mike Ferris, he looks up at the moon and he says, don't go away up there. We'll be up there in a little while. But he knows that the next time he goes up there, goes into that sensory deprivation area and goes to go to the moon, it's going to be, he's going to be really be alone. And he's just going to have to struggle with whatever loneliness feels like at that stage. Now, this episode is really interesting because um, 
this is one of the few episodes of the Twilight Zone that doesn't have any kind of like supernatural or like otherworldly elements to them. This is literally just about a man who is hallucinating because he has been alone for so long and sensory deprivation. He's in a very small, the box is about the size of like, if you think of like a control panel of like a plane, but like a one person, like if you were in a a car. It's it was about the size of like a v like the front seat area of a vehicle. And he was in there alone for 20 days. Um not able to speak to anybody, communicate with anybody. Um I don't even know if he was able to eat. They didn't make that clear, but I don't think he was able to eat. Um but this was a very interesting episode especially um as the when the pandemic first started and I this became my comfort show again which is kind of how I decided to start this podcast this is the very first episode right and we're in this pandemic where we're at being asked to self-isolate um and at the time I was in a relationship so I was living with someone but the relationship wasn't really going well so I did feel, you know, I know it's very cliche to say I felt alone even when I was with someone else. But I, I mean, in a larger sense, I had been, I, would, I live in New York. I had been going to Manhattan to go to work. I was taking the Long Island Railroad to go to the train every day, about an hour and a half each way. Um, I would go out for drinks with my coworkers after. I would go out on Fridays with my coworkers after. Um, we would do happy hours every Friday where we would stay in the office sometimes till three, four, five, six in the morning um, where I would hang out with them or we'd go other places and hang out. Um, I went from having these very full experiences with people all the time to being isolated in my home in Long Island for days, weeks, months of time. I had a vehicle at the time. I just sold my car and I had a car, but because um I didn't know that many people, um, my partner and I, like, he wasn't he didn't like meet couples at his job. And my job really wasn't a couple kind of job either. It was a startup. So like when we went out, we would go out singularly and go all hang out as singular units. Um, he, my partner, my former partner, worked at a place where people were married, had kids, um, had families, were partnered up, but he wasn't like that kind of outgoing person to introduce us to people. So, um, and even then, like, we were supposed to isolate, so it wasn't easy to, like, go hang out with people anyway. So, it was just days and weeks and months of like me just being in my home and I sometimes I wouldn't change out of my pajamas for days I mean there were times when I didn't shower for days to be honest just because it was like I'm not going anywhere I'm not doing anything and you know those first couple of weeks of isolation it was like you know staying home was nice not having to commute was nice you know I could cook at home I could clean up a little bit more often I could you know my breaks could be me watching tv I could work out on my breaks I could you know all this different stuff that I had the ability to do but after you know so many days isolation does start to make you feel like you're crazy 
And this, you know, this is 1959. So I'm pretty sure spaceships now, you know, when people go up into space, you know, they have areas that are dedicated to being able to move around mobility. There are multiple space crews that go up into space. But the idea at this point was that, you know, there was no, it was just going to be one person going up there, going to check out the moon and coming back down on their own as if it was like going on a routine check to check out a, a, a chemical spill or to go, you know, put out a fire. I know they go out in groups. I don't, and just like going out to survey a house to check and see if the grass needs to be mowed. It's the same kind of thing, but you know, with space and the moon. The moon landing wasn't for another 10 years. It was June 20th, 1969. So literally about nine and a half years to the day that that episode was made. And of course they went up in a team and they didn't have to be lonely. And NASA had kind of um, figured out uh, what space travel could look like at that point. But Rod Serling had created this in incredible world where we treat space travel the same way that we would treat any other job. And we would send one guy alone to go on the long and arduous journey to figure out whatever they had to figure out. And isolation would be the number one, the number one uh, most uh, detrimental thing to that experience, uh, just having to be alone. So much so that they don't travel alone. Um, so every Twilight Zone episode has a prologue, and this prologue is, uh, the barrier of loneliness. I'm gonna try to say it. I try to do it like Rob, but I can't do it. Okay. The barrier of loneliness, the palpable, desperate need of the human animal to be with his fellow man up there, up there in the vastness of space, in the void that is sky. Up there, there's an enemy known as isolation. It sits there in the stars, waiting, waiting with the patience of eons, forever waiting in the twilight zone. So, so, um, wonderful first episode. Um, It was well received. Um, The second episode, actually, I mean, the second season, there was actually an episode um where it was the episode was sort of remade and um uh season two's episode was called king nine will not return very popular episode as well we'll probably talk about uh that at another date um but for this to be the first episode of the show um it didn't really give the hints of that like otherworldliness that we associate with the twilight zone so much but it did give this idea of taking a small seed of something space travel the isolation of space travel and creating this like vast world and creating this vast world that only had one person in it is like it that's what made it so crazy it was a a a vast, uh, a really well-developed, thought-out episode where this man even had dialogue, but all of the dialogue was basically to himself. So we were able to learn things about him through the times when he was talking and through the times when he wasn't talking. It was really a great first effort, great first episode. Obviously, this is an iconic show, so it's not like you know, let's see if the show do- the show is going to do well. But um, this was an amazing episode. And we are going to talk about next one of my uh, other favorite episodes that also has to do with isolation. 
in another form. Next, we'll be talking about Time Enough at Last. So Time Enough at Last um, is the eighth episode of The Twilight Zone, season one, and um, became one of the most famous episodes. Um, it was based on a 1953 short story by Lynn Venable that was in a science fiction magazine called If. And um, I think it really uh, became one of the most famous episodes because the character of Henry Bemis is um, really relatable but in like a sad sap kind of way. And I think as we have developed um, personality-wise, um, as our generational gaps have increased in the way that we um, kind of process emotion and process being with ourselves has developed, I think this episode becomes more and more relatable to a lot of people. Um, so the episode stars uh, Burgess Meredith as Henry Bemis. Um, Jacqueline DeWitt plays his wife, Helen Bemis, and Vaughn Taylor plays Cardsvale, which is his boss. This is um, another one of these episodes where there are not a lot of people. Many of these episodes, there's not a lot of people in the episodes that are like, that have lines. So it's very easy to run through the cast listing. Um, and the inter interactions are low. So each interaction kind of has a poignant place in the episode, but we're going to get into talking about um, Time Enough at Last. Witness Mr. Henry Bemis, a charter member of the, in the fraternity of dreamers, a bookish little man whose passion is the printed page, but who is conspired against by a bank president and a wife in a world full of tongue cluckers and the unrelenting hands of a clock. But in just a moment, Mr. Bemis will enter a world without bank presidents or wives or clocks or anything else. He'll have a world all to himself without anyone. Ominous, right? <laughs> so at the beginning of the episode, Henry Bemis is at his bank teller window and he is helping this woman with getting some cash. Um, however, he can't really concentrate because he's been reading David Copperfield. It's his favorite book. And he's trying to explain the book and the characters to her. Much like I am trying to explain this episode to you. He, it's basically like he's having a podcast moment, but at the bank and with David Copperfield, the book, but this lady is like, sir, you gave me the wrong change. Like you need to keep up. Like he's just so busy talking to her he's not even doing his job correctly so um his boss ends up coming out afterwards because after she leaves he's like all right well i'm finna take a break and he puts up his little clothes sign next his little next window sign and starts reading what well, a boss comes out and it's like um can you come back to my office um and his boss is like um i see you every day you go down to the um the the vault during your lunch break and you read and you are too busy into this reading and Bemis is like he's like look well like the only reason I read here is because when I go home my wife don't want me to read there she tells me it's stupid and I need to be focused on making money and like being a family man um but I just want to read like she don't even want me to read the paper like nothing and his boss is like well you know what I think your wife is a smart lady I think that you are stupid and I think you need to learn how to make your wife happy instead of sitting out here reading these books. So he's pissed. Well, the boss is pissed, but Henry Bemis is just like, 
all right, fine. So he goes to go back to work. Can't even get out of the office. He starts reading something on the side table in the office before he can leave. He is so obsessed with reading. He gets home and he's trying to read at home. And his wife is like, hey, we're going out to dinner with some of the people. Some We're going to eat with the people. And he like, oh my God. But then, so she leaves the room and he's like, oh, you know what? I'm finna take my book with me. Yes. And I'm finna try to read while I'm there. So he's getting dressed. He's so excited. He goes up under his, um, under a seat cushion, grabs the book, puts it in his little coat pocket. And he hikes. He gets ready to leave. His wife comes in. He's like, oh my God. And she's like, hey, what you doing? And he was like, nothing. I'm just getting ready to go. She's like, what you just, what you got in your pocket? And he was like, nothing. I'm just, you know, just getting ready to go. She started touching on his jacket, takes the book out. She's like, what's this? And he was like, I just, you know, I'm just taking a book. She was like, read it to me. And he was like, oh my God, you want me to read it to you? Oh my God, this is one of my favorite books. It's poetry. It's beautiful. I cannot wait to read this to you. Opens the book. Every page has lines drawn all over it. This girl, this woman, this lady, his wife has gone through and drawn lines on every single page of this book. Just ruined this book. And he's and he was like, why would you do this? Why? And he, she was like, because you trash. You're doing too much. You read too much. I don't know why you're so obsessed with reading. You need to be working. You need to be you need to be catering to me, getting this family together. She grabs the book, starts ripping the pages out one by one. And he's like, what? Like, why are you doing this? So she throws the book on the ground. And he's trying to gather the pages together. He's just heartbroken because this book is just torn up to pieces. And he was, I mean, he loves to read. And I'm confused. This is a side note. I'm confused because I'm just like, what is so bad about this man reading? Like, these people are really treating him like he is looking at porn. He, they treat him like he is literally just trying to read David Copperfield. And they are upset at him. The, the bank teller even is upset at him for reading on his lunch. This is his lunch break. And he like, I see you down there on your lunch break reading. You need to stop. It's my lunch break. If I want to eat all my fingers one by one on my lunch break, I'm going to eat all my fingers one by one on my lunch break. Because it's my lunch break. It's my right to do that. But anyway, okay, so I'm getting beside myself. I know I need to get to the end of the episode, okay? But we're going to get there. So next day he goes to work, goes on his lunch break. He's like, I'm finna still go down to the vault on my lunch break because it's my lunch break. Just like I said. So he goes down to the vault. He got a little book with him. He got the newspaper. He chilling. He go down there. Boom. He's looking at the newspaper. And there's a headline that's like, um, H-bomb capable of total destruction in big-ass letters. But he still look happy reading this newspaper about this H-bomb. So then he finishes reading the paper. He closes. Oh, no. He, he's reading his book. He closes the book. Then he's like, all right, I'm going to read the paper for a little bit. Opens the paper. They talk about the H-bomb. He is excited even getting to read about that. While he's reading that, boom, a huge explosion happened outside. Everything starts shaking. 
All right. He passes out, presumably because there's so much shaking going on. Whatever. He got a lot going on. His glasses fall off his face. Because let me tell you, this is this is the funniest part. This man is obsessed with reading, right? But his bifocals, he got the biggest, thickest, most coke bottle bifocals glasses. I can't even say glasses. I've got to say bifocals because they're so thick and big. This man is a mess. So he gets up and at first he can't see because his glasses is crooked on his face. He finally adjusts them and everything is a mess. Everything is a wreck everywhere. He tries, he ends up going up the stairs. He sees his boss's hand sticking out from underneath something. There's a record that's still playing that had been playing in the office, something about the bank. It wasn't even like music. It was uh, something about the bank that was playing. But he sees his boss's hand sticking out from something. He's like, oh my gosh. So now he goes outside and everybody's dead. Like there's no one. That you remember last episode when I was saying there's no one, and he was looking around like there's nobody. Well, this now there's nobody except for like he could tell people dead. Like he could see hands, he could see like it's not that many body parts because you know this is not a gruesome show, but it is very clear that everybody is dead. So now, um, the vault had basically saved him from this nuclear bomb. The bomb has devastated the t- entire earth and he was saved by the vault. Seconds, minutes, hours. They crawl by on hands and knees for Mr. Henry Bemis, who looks for a spark in the ashes of a dead world, a telephone connected to nothingness, a neighborhood bar, movie, baseball diamond, hardware store, mailbox, now rubble. They are battered monuments to what is, what was, but is no more. He's on an eight-hour tour of a graveyard. So he's alone, looking through, even looking for food. And he's got to eat canned food because it's pretty much all that's left. Because you know, they talk about when the when the big one come, you know, that's why you got to have all the canned and powdered foods and all the stuff. Um, because that's the only stuff that's going to last. All the, all the organic, natural stuff is going to be affected by the, the radiation. I don't know how he just walking around in it anyway. Um, but I guess we didn't really think about like what that actually looks like. But um, so he's just walking around, eating canned food, um, and he can't really look for anybody else. He tried to start a car, but there's no gas. Um, and he just, he's just generally walking around in his little town looking for survivors, but he don't want to leave out his little area because like he know where the food at. He can kind of just live, even though it sucks. Um, so he finally finds a gun on the ground and he's thinking like, you know, maybe I'll just do, uh, do myself a solid and end it for the one good time. Cause like, ain't nobody else out here. I really don't want to eat canned food for literally the rest of my life. I'm miserable. Like, what am I even doing? Like, he's upset. All of a sudden, off in the distance, Buddy sees a library. The public 
library. Somehow, all of these places are, there were so many ruins. Places were completely demolished. But somehow, there are so many books that are still good. And he is um, so excited. And he runs over and he's like, oh my gosh, this is all the books I could ever hope to read. You know, buddy, you know, buddy love his books. So he gets all the books. He sorts them. Um, like by, I, I don't know if he was sorting them by title or by subject or by like the order he wanted to read them in or whatever. But he's like, I, I got my canned food. I got my books. I got time, bruh. He's like, more than anything, I got time. Ain't nobody finna come stop me. Ain't nobody finna come get at me. Nothing. So, you know, he done, he done put the little gun down because he happy now. He done sorted through all his books. He finally sit down with the first book. Happy. Content. At some point, as he's um leaning over, his glasses, forever loose, accidentally fall off his face. Unfortunately, this is the time when the glasses break. And I mean shatter. Sh the glasses shatter into multiple pieces. Not just like, oh, the lens fell out. No, the glasses are broke. And he goes to pick them bad boys up. The glass fall all the way out. And Buddy try to put them things. It's just like literally a frame. And he's so sad. And he is, he's like, there was time. There was time now. He can't even, he's so blind. He can't even find the gun now that he done threw away. That he was he was planning to, plan to kill himself. Didn't kill himself. Can't find the gun now. Can't find nothing. Can't see nothing. And now he's just sitting on the steps. Can't even read. Oh. <laughs> Devastated. Can't see nothing. He can't even see to get around to find food. He can't see to get around to do nothing. Oh, my gosh. And all he wanted to do is sit and read. And that that's literally how it ends. And I'm going to give y'all this little closing narration. The best laid plans of mice and men. And Henry Bemis, the small man in the glasses who wanted nothing but time. Henry Bemis, now just a part of a smashed landscape, just a piece of rubble, just a fragment of what man had deeded to himself. Mr. Henry Bemis in the Twilight Zone. So the most apparent theme of the episode is the be careful what you wish for because you might get it. You know, he just wanted time. He just wanted to be alone, you know. But the I think the one of the most interesting themes of the episode is the theme of solitude versus loneliness. So we have this character, Henry Bemis. Um, part of the thing that we learn, um, especially in the scene when he is supposed to go to the game night or dinner party with his wife. His wife is obviously very mean to him, um, Helen, uh, you know, scratching up his books, tearing the pages out of the books. But it's also very apparent that 
he's supposed to be going and spending time with these other people and he's taking a book with him. So he's not planning on engaging with these people at all. He's not planning on spending time with them or his wife. He often um, spends time in the parlor reading by himself. And um, when his wife comes in at first to ask him why he's reading by himself instead of hanging out with her, he says, you should be spending time with me. So we do get this idea that maybe like he's a scorned house husband or a scorned husband who, you know, never really gets time to himself. He works so hard. He just wants to spend time, you know, reading some books. And we think that this is like an admirable trait. We even may think that this is relatable to us. But if you think about the other side of the situation, there's a woman at the bank who can't even get proper change because he's so obsessed with talking to her about his books. Um, he's He can't even get back to work after being chastised by his boss because he has to stop and read something in his office. Um, and he won't even hang out with his wife or hang out with family friends because he's so busy wanting to read his books. And so he is forever seeking solitude in this world, thinking that like the characters in his books are way more engaging than the characters in his life. And when he finally gets it, he wants to kill himself because it's not solitude, it's lonely. Solitude and loneliness are two separate, distinguishable things. We look, often seek solitude, but we find ourselves being lonely. Solitude is a positive, um, something positive that we look for. Moments of peace, pockets of peace, moments to ourselves when we can breathe and think and clear our minds. But when we get too stuck on this idea that people are a hindrance to us clearing our minds, people are the hindrance to us being able to have pockets of peace, we risk isolating ourselves into loneliness. I mentioned... Um, I was in a relationship where we moved around a lot. We didn't meet a lot of people. He didn't really want to do couple things. Um, he was very focused on his own activities and didn't really want to do things with me. Now, there are a number of reasons for that that we can get into on a, a whole other show um, because we're not talking about dating. But um, when I moved out of living with him and moved out on my own, and realize, you know, my friends have friends, they can't hang out all the time. And I only had, you know, a small handful of people that I knew here. Um, those moments when I lived with him where I was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to be by myself. I can't wait to not have to clean up behind someone. I can't wait until I can leave food in my refrigerator and it's still there when I come back. I can't wait until, you know, I can leave my makeup on the table and I don't have him complaining about having to use the table before I can clean it up. All of these things that I was like, oh, I can't wait to have a space that's all my own. I can't wait to be able to stay up as late as I want without having to be quiet so I don't have to bother him. I can't wait to be able to work out in my home without having to feel like weirdly watched all of these things that I was looking for in the solitude, there are also moments where I'm like, gosh, I'm so lonely. Like there's no noise in my house. You know, I can go to sleep and wake up whenever I want. And there's no one to be like, hey, wake up. Did you eat? 
Now, granted, my ex never asked me if I ate, never asked me if I was okay, never asked me if I had, you know, done things to take care of myself. He wasn't a person to check in on me like that. But when you are in a, you know, an actual successful or, you know, a somewhat successful relationship, having someone around, even kids to have around or a parent or, um, you know, a roommate, uh, uh, a best friend who's around who can, you know, just check in on you, even when you don't necessarily want to be checked in on is, is nice. Um, I remember this past birthday, I turned 35 and I have a friend who had, we sort of had plans uh, to do something, but hadn't really made any tangible plans. And I remember like waking up and feeling kind of like bad, just feeling kind of sad about myself and saying like, yeah, I don't think I really want to go out today. And the, I don't know, like at the time it was like, all right, like I don't really want to go out. And I just kind of like, you know, put it off. But later on, I kept thinking about the disappointment of having a friend who I was like, yeah, I don't think I really want to go out for my birthday and having a friend who was just like, okay. And not like, hey, what's going on? Are you okay? Like, can I check in on you? Can I make sure you're okay? Like, not even being like, can I send you some food? You know, can I get you a cake? Like anything. It was just like, okay, well, you know, sorry, you're not feeling good. Um, And it's just this feeling of like, wow, like, sure, I wanted to be by myself. But now I feel lonely because I realized the person who I needed to tell that I wanted to be myself by myself, didn't want to be with me anyway, didn't want to hang out with me anyway, didn't want to do anything with me anyway. And it's very apparent. So um, the feeling of loneliness that overtakes you when the happy feeling of solitude passes, it's crazy. And having him sort of like be, be in this lonely place until he realized that he had those books and he had these characters that were now the only people that would be in his world. He had convinced himself that these characters in these books were the best characters that existed, even better than, you know, people in real life. And now he's in a place where these are the only people. And so he was so happy to have access to any kind of interaction, even if it was fictional or even if it was in book form that like that lonely feeling momentarily went away and now once the glasses break and that little piece of technology that he has that's allowing him to engage with this fictional world is is gone he has nothing you see because in order for him to be able to access those characters in this fictional world, he needs a real person to fix his glasses. He needs a person to help him access the solitude that he needs. And he never conceptualized or really thought about the fact that it takes a person to provide him with that piece of solitude that that in, that he would find in those books. And it's really unfortunate knowing that he can't even find the solitude of death because he can't, he's going to be stumbling around looking for that gun forever. He won't be able to find the food. He won't be able to find anything. And so now he's gotten exactly what he wanted in the worst possible way that he could get it.
So the Twilight Zone, there are some episodes, I think, on Pluto TV. You can watch the first two seasons for free. Um, if you have Paramount Plus, you can watch all of the seasons of the Twilight Zone. I don't know if you subscribe to that. But other than that, I think you have to, um, we would have to purchase it in order to watch it. Um, but I will say that my yearly tradition, I haven't done it in a year or so, um, but I've might plan on actually doing it this year um, because the last couple of years I was somewhere for New Year's. Um, but every year on New Year's Eve, uh, the Sci-Fi Channel puts on a marathon of the Twilight Zone and they usually play it from New Year's Eve to um, about 6 a.m. on January 2nd. So from New Year's Eve evening all of New Year's Day, and then into the morning of the second, um, they play uh, episodes. Some of them will repeat. Some of them um, play only once during their cycles. But I will try to catch at least part of the marathon every year because it's literally one of my favorite shows. It's my comfort show. Um, we're going to be talking about more episodes in the near future. So hopefully you enjoyed this. And um uh, hopefully we'll, and if you guys have any favorite episodes that you guys like of the Twilight Zone, if you watch it, you know, send them to me, be like, Hey, can you talk about this episode? I think that'd be really cool. Or, you know, if you want me to talk about episodes around a certain subject matter, because there are tons of subject matters that, that Rod discusses. Um, I did want to mention actually about this episode too. Um, if you notice the actual, the thing that Rod wanted to address was the H-bomb. The H-bomb is the thing that could end humanity and there would be no one left. That's the thing that Rod Serling wanted to say. But he can't say, hey, the H-bomb is fucked up. We, it shouldn't exist because it could destroy humanity and we could all end up by ourselves or end up in this situation like Henry Bemis did. So it's the backing for this like really crazy story. But he manages to like bury the lead so to speak, in um, a really interesting way. So that is all the time that we have for today. The next episode, which will be coming out next week, is I know I say that this is one of my favorite movies of all time, but by God, I promise you, this is probably one of my favorite movies. It is sort of, kind of, a little bit of a musical, but not a musical the way that like Tommy was a musical, not the way that Grease was a musical. Um, the costumes are fantastic. The performances are fantastic. And this movie literally features the love of my life. And I have the only tattoo that I have is uh, a song that is from this, the name of a song that's from this film. And everybody who knows me will now know what movie I'm doing next week. <laughs> but I'm so excited. Um, it is kind of a sad occasion, but I'm excited to be doing it. Anyway, please follow the podcast on whatever platform you use and rate wherever available. Check out the Halef Pod Instagram. Follow me on Twitter at film underscore Nikki and send any collab requests, advice, movie recommendations, or general greetings to here's looking podcast at gmail.com. That's H-E-R-E-S-L-O-O-K-I-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and if I don't see you, good afternoon, 
Good evening and good night from the Twilight Zone. Cheers. <laughs>